I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Ryan, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we continue our Israel-Palestine coverage with Ariel Gold of the Fellowship for Reconciliation. She is a longtime anti-war activist and will be speaking about Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's recent invocation of the biblical story of Amalek and what exactly that entails. It's rather worrying. So with all that in mind, let's get right to it with Ariel Gold. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very happy to be speaking with. Ariel Gold, who is the executive director of the Fellowship of Reconciliation. She was the national co-director of the anti-war group Code Pink, where she specialized in campaigns for Palestinian rights. Uh, how are you doing? I mean, I you know, it's strange. Every, I asked that of every guest, and every guest right now is saying, well, it could be better given what's happening. But <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I'll say that my uh, my heart is just split wide open these days. So, Ariel, the reason I wanted to have you on, uh, you wrote a piece that has been published, I believe, in a number of outlets now. I've seen it in the L.A. Progressive and I believe Counterpunch uh, called Who's Drinking Netanyahu's Amalek Kool-Aid? Uh, if people don't know, what the, what is Amalek and why is it significant <laughs> that Netanyahu sure. used that term? So Netanyahu on October 28th started invoking the biblical story of Amalek, and he started invoking it by saying, um, uh, uh, remember what Amalek did to you and remember and, and fight. And we are fighting. 
And uh, he then wrote the same thing in a Shabbat letter to the troops and has done some other invoking of scripture as well. And uh, kind of the, the biblical concepts of he's, he's literally called uh, the Jews, the children of the light and uh, Arabs, the children of the darkness, which is again, you know, very uh, biblical. So, the, the story of Amalek in, in the Tanakh or the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, however it, folks refer to it, uh, Amalek was a nation and they were long the, the, the mortal enemy of the Jews as, as the Israelites were making their way to the promised land, uh, the uh, Amalek ambushes them. And Moses descends uh, a nearby mountain to pray while his top fighters uh, go battle um, the Amalekites. And uh, they did beat them back, um, but Moses experiences God, you know, answers him as he's praying and says, you must never forget this battle. You must never forget how the, uh, how the nation of Amalek came and tried to destroy us. And you must wage an eternal war until uh, the very existence of the Amalekites is no longer any place on this earth. And then so hundreds of years later, the, the story comes back uh, in, in the Hebrew Bible with uh, King Saul, who gets into a battle with the Amalekites and he kills women and children and many huge massacre but he spares the king spares the amalekite king well generations after that in what is the story of purim um a descendant of that king who was spared haman uh develops a plot to kill all the jews in persia and the plot is foiled by esther um so what what's being called for there that that clear lesson is that uh having not exterminated <laughs> completely exterminated beyond uh even our usual conceptions of genocide as we are watching genocide happen uh is that they must be completely exterminated or they'll come back again and so when netanyahu invoked that he is is calling for and naming what he's doing in Gaza as genocide. And I, I think it's important to add too. I mean, this isn't the only remark we've heard from, uh, you know, I, there's a number of Israeli officials that have made statements in the past month that I would say are, you know, rhetorically calls for uh, yes. genocide or at least at the very least just brutal work crimes. Where I would say this one is a little bit unique is two things here. So, um, it, well, first of all, Netanyahu is notoriously secular in his private life, but he is choosing this uh, biblical language. He is choosing scripture. And what's a little bit different here is that he's not only speaking to the far right in Israel, as some of those other politicians have been doing, um, or, or speaking to like uh, right wing, uh, re you know, like the the Republican Party here in the U.S., but he's speaking to um, 
the Christians. He's speaking to the evangelical fundamentalist, the Christian Zionist movement here in the U.S., uh, which is actually enormous. And before Netanyahu evoked Amalek, uh, uh, Christian Zionist groups were already doing that. And in fact, they've been doing so for years uh, as their rallying cry to um, support Israel militarily, which, you know, for anybody who is familiar with evangelical support for Israel, it has nothing to do with caring for the well-being of the Jewish people. It is because they believe that uh, when enough Jews return to Israel, the, um, the apocalypse will happen. And then the Jews and the Muslims will either convert or they'll burn up and there'll be rivers of blood and, and so on. So that's their angle. And that's how we simultaneously see, um, especially in America, uh, the a combination of anti-Semitism and support for Israel. I have a friend who has termed it anti-Semites for Israel like as a group. And so, you know, we have Christians United for Israel is one of those big groups. They claim to have 10 million members and uh, their their lead pastor, uh, John Hagee, has uh, he has praised Hitler, saying that Hitler was sent by God to get the Jews back to Israel. And he said, you know, that it also, you know, it was punishment because we weren't going where we needed to go to to bring the apocalypse. So that's a lot of who Netanyahu is speaking to, and that is deeply worrisome. Could you speak a little bit to, uh, you know, you, you referenced some of the people uh, that were in the kibbutzim on October 7th in this article you wrote. Why do you mention them, and, and what do you mention them in contrast to? Because I think you're saying essentially, you know, there's a lot of voices in Israel uh, that were affected by uh, the October 7th attack that are saying, you know, I blame Netanyahu for this. And, you know, I, I think in some ways that's not getting enough coverage. Well, we have to look a little bit at where they're located. So when Israel formed in 1948, um, it was largely a group of secular Zionists. And we had these kibbutzes, these uh, communal agricultural communities. And, uh, you know, it was a, a socialism. And, you know, now Israel is, is very capitalist. And that uh, population is, you know, very shrunken. But its remnants are in uh, are in the south of Israel in what's called the Gaza envelope, which was actually set up uh, in order to well in forty eight and in the fifties to take land and then also as a buffer and you know so right before so it's kind of the the peaceniks it's like the uh, the Israeli left has become really really small in recent years. There's huge trends towards uh, just fascist right. Um, but the remnants, the, the small amount, there a lot of them, they're either in Tel Aviv or they're in the Gaza envelope. And so it, during the attack, a number, a, quite a few of um, anti-occupation activists were the victims of, of Hamas's brutal attack. And so we have the dynamics of that community and um, 
that community has long been neglected by the state of Israel as it is heavily right wing. In fact, recently, they had been petitioning uh, the government that they needed better bomb shelters because that's where Hamas's rockets fall. And they were told, despite massive amounts of money being spent to build more settlements, that uh, that the state couldn't afford to build them more bomb shelters. And in leading up to October 7th, 75% of the Israeli troops that are placed there were reallocated to the West Bank to support the settler movement. And after the the horrifying um, situation, you know, the horrifying massacre, slaughter on on October 7th, uh, there was a lot of language about they deserved it. They've always been traitors. They are traitors. And so, you know, for anybody that that's thinking, God, the state does not really seem to be doing uh, all that it can to get those hostages back. This is part of why. And and you're saying some of these. Um, let me see if I can pull up the actual quotes that you had. Uh Oh, there's some beautiful quotes. So yeah, so we have remnants of the the uh, peace movement there, and uh, you know, there's there's uh, I didn't quote uh, her, but there right after October seventh, there's a young woman who survived the massacre at the um, outdoor rave festival, and she's pleading, just pleading. I don't want violence as a recent, you know, to come from this. And she's, it's right after, um, you know, she got out and friends were killed and, you know, so on. And she's just so shaken um, and so pleading. And yeah, if you want to read some of these uh, quotes as well. Yeah, I was going to say, so uh, one of the quotes that really stood out to me was uh, Tom Godo, whose uh, son lived and died in one of these uh, kibbutzim. And he blamed the Netanyahu administration. He said, the fingers that pulled the trigger and murdered, the hands that held the knives, stabbed and beheaded and slashed, were the loyal and determined emissaries of the accursed messianic and corrupt government of Israel. Uh, those are some strong words. Yes. Yeah, so aside from the references to messianic and um you know, aside, aside from the descriptions, which then he's speaking of the far right, uh, it's widely, Netanyahu is widely hated right now. And the people, you know, from everything that I hear and read, even though he's like the politician with more than nine lives, who, you know, we always think he's done and then he comes back. Everyone says this is really the end. And what what's keeping him still in office is that the war is still going on. So the blaming of Netanyahu is actually really widespread because, again, you have those troops being reallocated. You have uh, decades, as long as Netanyahu has been in power, of him saying that the conflict, that the occupation and the siege could be managed Right. And that we could that Israelis could no longer worry about it. And it no longer was a, a voting issue. And even um, uh, more centrist politicians like Benny Gantz uh, have called for much more extreme um, military actions. And Netanyahu has 
traditionally, he's actually been uh, shy about massive military actions. So there's a variety of reasons that he's being blamed. And we have here, like, how the victims are blaming him, but then there's also blame across society. I was going to say one of the quotes that I've seen is uh, that I don't know if it was Netanyahu himself um, or another figure within the Netanyahu government, but the idea was, well, we can contain Gaza. And I think the line that was used was, we control the height of the flame. Um, So, I mean, this was a huge miscalculation on his part. Another thing I wanted to get into uh, was in your article, you referenced this party and I going to botch the pronunciation. Uh, right, right. Uh, the Kahanist party. Uh, maybe yes. you could talk a little bit about Kahane. Sure. And also on this show, we've talked a lot about figures like uh, Itamar Ben-Giver. And I think a lot of listeners get confused because they'll say, well, if the party was banned, then how is someone like Ben-Giver around and now in a ministerial position? Yeah, let, let, me, let me go back a little bit. I'm even going to go a little further into its history. So uh, the Kach Party was founded by Rabbi Mir Kahane, who was born in Brooklyn. And before he immigrated to Israel in 1971, he started here in the U.S. the Jewish Defense League which if any folks are familiar with, it's a violent uh, organization, also has been classified by the U.S. as uh, a terrorist organization. And they've carried out firebombings of uh, the Arab American Institute office here. Um, they charged with murder. It, they're really vile, right? And also um, had really done their best to create animosity between New York Jews and uh, Black people in New York. So that's where Amir Kahane comes from. And then he immigrates to Israel in 1971 and founds the Koch Party, which is an ultra-nationalist and and ultra-religious party. And so, you know, he's arguing for... uh, arguing for a second Nakba, a second forced mass displacement, ethnic cleansing, which now we're actually seeing, um, and you know, the forced transfer of Arabs, the revoking of Arab citizenship for those that had it, and as well, rapidly uh, homophobic. Um, he tried to introduce legislation to uh, ban uh Jewish Gentile marriages or any interactions uh, between them. Now, a little bit of context on this. So during its time, the Koch party only ever won one seat in parliament. It only ever occupied one seat, and that was in 1994. So it was actually quite marginalized. Um, And then it was prohibited from running in the next election because it was so... Um, racist. And then in 1994, after one of uh, Mir Kahane's followers, Baruch Goldstein, also from Brooklyn, he entered the El Ibrahimi Mosque in uh, the West Bank city of Hebron and opened fire, killing 29 Palestinians in worship until he was tackled to the ground. Um, and he had been a follower of Rabbi Kahan. 
And Rabbi Kahan, you know, defended him, actually really applauded it. And that was what got the cock party banned. Now, what we've seen, so you would think, okay, that's the end of them. Even the U.S. State Department classifies them as a terrorist organization. They're done. But what's happened as Israeli society has, uh, especially in the past 10 years, uh, become more and more right wing, more and more fascist, we've seen this huge revival of uh, worshiping of uh, Baruch Goldstein, for one, his he was buried uh, right outside Hebron in the settlement and his grave is visited every year as an anniversary to pay tribute to him. And then we've seen the outgrowth uh, of, you know, like you'll see graffiti throughout the West Bank, cock was right. And so there's been this resurgence. And then Itmar ben Gavar because it was not the cock party. It was, you know, he, it's an ideological offshoot. He managed to get it into Knesset. And it probably would have remained marginal had Netanyahu in... Uh, 2019 welcomed them because he was trying to form a coalition. And then since then, they have become one of the most popular parties in uh, in Israel. And, and uh, his party uh, translates into Jewish power. And so if you want to think of what the Kak party was or who Baruch Goldstein was, just, just think of the Jewish KKK and imagine a large contingent of David Duke and his uh, minions in the U.S. Congress, because that's an accurate comparison. So how does this all tie together, these these references to Amalek, the Christian Zionists, and then these, I would say, very apocalyptic, fanatical, uh, far-right figures, like not just Ben Giver, but also I would say uh, someone who I consider very dangerous, like uh, Bezalel Smotrich. Well, they're, they're, they're two peas in the same pod. So when I said Ben Kavir and his minions, uh, they actually merged parties, Shmotrik and, and Ben Gavir. Uh, so they're now in one party and uh, won a third, uh, they were the third largest winner of Knesset seats for a party. And it was a lot of young people who voted for them, a lot of young people. Uh, and they've taken over really important offices. So... Uh, the education minister is Moaz, who's also part of that. And he is intent on uh, making the he got a, uh, making the schools more religious and uh, bringing back conversion therapy, uh, really banning LGBTQ folks in schools and, and uh, conversion therapy. So we have this this grouping of them. And when you talk about, the, the, it is messianic, just like the evangelical Christians here. And so when um, Ben Gavar came into office, he presented himself. And also as there was this little bit like, hey, this party seems a lot like cocky. He said, no, 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 we're much more moderate. We're much more moderate. And then somebody said, you know, you've got a picture of Baruch Goldstein, the, the, <laughs> the uh, massacre guy hanging on the wall of your office behind your desk. Oh, whoops, I took it down now. So he presented that and, you know, kind of promised to be more moderate. But since he's come into office, he uh, is frequently leading delegations of right-wing settlers to 
go up on into the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound and knowing and praying in the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound, knowing that that is the most insightful thing to do to the whole Arab world. And, you know, it's uh, it's not just poking the bear. It's like poking the bear with a sharp knife. Uh, and you, look, he, he got what he wanted in many ways. Uh, the the um, war that broke out in 2021 uh, with Hamas, and it started, in, that started in Jerusalem with, uh, because of the Al-Aqsa Mosque compound and uh, police raids against Palestinians there. So it's a really volatile issue. And the status quo is that Jews don't pray there. Um, and he's trying to break that status quo. I was going to say, too, I think at one point he was considered a, a security threat by Shin Bet. <laughs> you know, so. Well, he's been arrested many times. Uh, right. Ben Gibar for uh, inciting terror and yes, absolutely he has been. But again, Netanyahu needed that. You know, again, he's secular in his own life, but he needed that to form his government. And so he openly partnered with the Jewish Power Party who are now massively important. And Ben Gavar got the position of Minister of Internal Security. So he's in charge of the police and he's been handing out uh, automatic weapons to settler civilians, many of whom never even served in the army so that they can uh, carry out their own militia. And they are. One, one thing I wanted to bring up because I've had people mention it to me whenever I've talked about uh, ben Givar. And like I said, I, I think it's important to talk about, it's not just Ben Givar, it's also uh, right. a figure like Smotrich. A bunch of them. Right. Uh, I, but I guess what people will say as pushback is, well, you know, Ben Givar, uh, he had to consolidate with the religious Zionism party, but those parties had to work together. And, you know, alone, they're they're nothing. You know, they, they sort of needed each other. <laughs> That was in 2019, because by the time after 2019, they they consolidated because it was smaller then. And when they made it into office in 2022, they were third uh, largest party in, in parliament. And so there were one, you know, uh, yeah, the third largest number of seats. So I don't, you know, I don't think they have any reason to split up now. But they're quite popular. And Ben Gavar in particular among them is popular among young Israelis, including young Israelis even in Tel Aviv. And is, he's this the, also, is this the hilltop youth? No, no, I'm saying even Tel Aviv. Okay, okay. I mean, yeah, certainly the hilltop youth who are really out of control. But I mean just uh, mainstream uh, Israelis. And that's the really significant danger is that you have like newly graduated from high school Tel Aviv Israelis who are young, who voted for Ben Gavar because they like him. He he's, he's exciting. And he's very, um, he's very savvy on social media. His son helps him with social media and he does these like, Hey, dad's off to work to to protect the Jewish people and get the Arabs. It, you know what it reminds me of? I don't know if you've ever seen the movie American History X with Edward Norton, but they, you know, they always 
these like white nationalists and, and white supremacist neo-Nazi types, they always go after young kids and they manipulate young kids. And that that to me is I think yeah. I think that's what Ben Giver has done. You know, I think a lot of these yeah. hilltop youths are like they're almost like lost boys, you know, and, and they get yeah. taken in. And it's even appealing, though, to the mainstream, kind of similar to what we've seen here, uh, you know, with folks going down a rabbit hole on YouTube. We had, you know, a lot of that and what we're seeing a bit here with um, the Proud Boys and things of that nature. The Proud Boys and the Gropers. So and we have some comedians in with that, too. Right. Laura Loomer and oh, I, I forget the other guy's name, but they they have a real media savvy and appeal Ben Guevara himself himself does not look like Richard Spencer, who's the like snappy dresser Nazi, but he's actually so you wouldn't think that he has that kind of following, but he does. Just a few more things, if we could spend an extra few minutes, if you have the time. Um, So one of the things in your article that you mentioned is that there are people that are rejecting this sort of religious nationalism and you know, trying to reclaim the story of Amalek. Uh, can you talk about that a bit? Sure. So I want to first say that, that that's not happening in Israel. It is, you know, the, the remnants of the peace movement, of the old peace movement and the anti-occupation activists are very uh, maligned in society. It's very small. Uh, God bless them because they have been out in the streets demonstrating and, uh they're trying to pass a bill to allow them uh, allow the Israeli police to open live fire on them. I mean, they're they're really brave to be stepping out the way they are, but they're very small. Now, that's not the case in the U.S. So, in the U.S., over the past decade, and especially like the last five six years, uh, young Jewish American opinion has been shifting rapidly. Jewish American opinion uh, overall, but especially young Jews. Um, we can look at the formation of If Not Now and what they've attracted. So there's this real shift that's taking place there. And with that shift taking place, Israel has said like, all right, we're, we're done with you. It's been called the great divorce. Uh, American Jews, 80% of us vote Democratic, even amid support for Israel. So we're not that far right that's growing in Israel. So, you know, that happening, Israel said, well, we don't need you anymore. You know, shove off. There's way more evangelical Americans than there are Jewish Americans, and they love us because the apocalypse. So we're going to go after them. And uh, we saw Israeli ambassador to the U.N., Gilan Erdad, who is a really deplorable figure. He personally uh, was the one who had my visa revoked when I was deported from Israel and called me all kinds of nasty names. Um, So I I have a personal little uh, thing with him. But he went to uh, speak at so with Pastor uh, John Hagee, the one who said that Hitler was sent by God uh, and to raise money for for Israel's war. So that's happening. But polling of of evangelical uh, Zionists is also shifting. And especially among young folks, we've seen um, a drop among young evangelicals uh, from 75 percent to 34 percent in their support for Israel. So that's really significant. And then we have the growing Jewish left here in the U.S. as as we'll call it, and not even the 
left in terms of anti-Israel, but we also have uh, a long history of of political of, of reform movement in our in our religious uh, movements here in the U.S. Not in Israel, again. In fact, Israel, you're re- you're mostly either Orthodox or secular. But here in the U.S., we have a lot of progressiveness in our faith. And so we have folks that have been re-looking at the story of Amalek and seeing it instead of a call for genocide as a warning, as a a call to look inward at uh, evil impulses or, you know, not or to how to build peace rather than um, build hatred and to make good moral choices. So there, there's stuff to build on there. And, you know, we have to do this as Jews anyway. Um, I remember when I did the bar and bat mitzvah circuit with my kids, um, some kid, you know, would be having their, their B'nai mitzvah and they'd have a, a Torah portion to comment on. And sometimes they'd be like, look, this was just really awful. God was like mean and vengeful and, I, 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 you know, and they would figure out a way like the, their um, mentor would, you know, help them to find uh, a different interpretation. And we often can. And that's um, one of those beautiful things. And I think we have to take these things like the story of Amalek and reclaim them from the religious nationalists. And uh, I'd love to direct folks to um, Fellowship of Reconciliation. We're the oldest interfaith peace and justice organization in the world and our current campaign right now is called reclaim the name of god you can find it on our website forusa.org and uh so that's you know this is part of that necessity whether we're christian or jewish or muslim or buddhist or hindu how do we reclaim our faith I just wanted to ask you one more question, um, if you have the time. Uh, So I I know you mentioned earlier that you feel that what we are seeing is a genocide. And I've seen the debates over this. Um, You know, Jewish Currents had that article by uh, Rez Segal, a textbook case of genocide. I also read um, Dove Waxman from UCLA's uh, response to that. He he disagreed. I, I like both of those people. But the thing is, I mean, all I will say, and then I'll I'll let you uh, make your case, is that when Operation Protective Edge happened, the the 2014 Gaza War, we saw uh, over 2,000 Palestinians were killed in that. And that lasted one month, two weeks, and four days. This has lasted, you know, a little over 30 days and over 10,000 deaths. So that's all I will say. I want you to comment, though, on the genocide debate. Yeah, so I, I think it's a debate, and I, I know that I personally am not a genocide scholar, so I, I'm not going to make a, a case in that way other than to cite uh, scholars who have. Uh, but then I'm also going to look at it through a slightly different lens. So I think there are very much times that naming that is productive and useful. So when we have uh, Jewish demonstrations, you know, uh, Jews and their allies taking over a Grand Central Station in New York with, you know, Jews against genocide, it's really powerful. And we not only see these massive killings in, and just uh, today they, they've been bombing uh, 
the courtyard of El Shifa Hospital, and you know, bodies are strewn around. Um, and we have Netanyahu like openly saying, I, you know, this is this is our call to commit a genocide. That said, there are other times when thinking of who we're speaking to, what is the language that's going to most effectively um, enable people to hear us as we are in conversation. So if I use the term genocide as a description in in a conversation with folks who are in, in, in a different, um, on a different range of the spectrum as me, we might end up, you know, having a, a debate over the word, over the word genocide, rather than a conversation about what's happening, the, the over 10,000 dead, the hospitals bombed. And so uh, I think in various circumstances, we want to think of our language and who we're speaking to and what we want to accomplish with that language. In that regard, I also wanted to ask, um, do you think sometimes, uh, right now we're at a crisis point, and I think people really need to not get caught up in distractions or abstractions. So for instance, uh, I see people argue all the time about uh, Zionism versus anti-Zionism. And for me right now, we just need a united front to make cease sure fire. the killing stops. <laughs> right, just ceasefire. Yeah. <laughs> uh, was there a question in that? I was just curious uh, your thoughts on that. Yeah, it it constantly baffles me how ceasefire has become controversial. Uh, that has become so controversial that Jews are being attacked as as being pro Hamas, which like Jewish Voice for Peace. For anybody who hears that Jewish Voice for Peace is pro Hamas, because folks like the Anti Defamation League are spreading that lie. Um, it, so you know. It, uh, we're not, but we're not talking about Zionism. Like we're just saying, stop the bloodshed, just stop the bombings. And it's baffling that that is so controversial. And so I very much agree um, both that we have to, um, you know, keep it simple and also big as, build as large of a tent as possible. You know, uh, Jay Street, who I've long been a fan of, is yet to call for a ceasefire, but I'd like to bring them in rather than alienate them further. So, um, yeah, I think we have to keep it really simple and broad ceasefire. I've mentioned Jay Street on the show before. I, I think emotions are very high right now, but I, I hope in the near future things can emotions can maybe come down a little yeah. bit. That's my hope. Uh you know, Ariel Gold, I want to thank you again for coming on the show. I, I have to be honest. I really respect what you do because, you know, I, I was just – I read articles in the past month. Um, I You know, I think I even read one in, in Tablet Magazine where there are calls to say, oh, if if you are at these protests, then you have unjewed yourself. You're not we, – we excommunicate you from the community. And seeing things like that, I just find that horrifying – and I can only imagine what it's like um, as a Jewish American to have uh, other people in the community basically saying we we exile you. And I'm not saying that's the whole community, of course, new. but yeah. It's not new to me. And it's actually, um, aside from that, has gotten so much better because there have been these massive shifts in Jewish public opinion, some of which have been thanks to groups like, like J Street. Um, as they've endorsed uh, legislation uh, to hold Israel accountable. So it's happening again. And and uh, yeah, I, I should say I'm well-versed in it. 
Well, thank you again, Ariel Gold. How can my listeners keep up with your work? Uh, you can, first of all, check out our website and our Reclaim the Name of God campaign. Sign up for our newsletter there, and we send out weekly emails. One of those, the first Wednesday of the month is a newsletter, and we encourage folks, and once you sign up, you'll see an email. If you have an event that you're hosting or you've created a new resource or toolkit, we include that in, in the newsletter, so we, we encourage folks to uh, send stuff to us so that we can help put it out and lift it up. Um, so that's at forusa.org. And you can follow me on Twitter, X, whatever they're calling it these days. Uh, A-R-I-E-L, my first name, Elise, E-L-Y-S-E, gold, like jewelry. And I have the same handle on Instagram. So um, give a follow. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you got something out of my conversation with Ariel Gold. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. It's nothing else. If we don't do it, others will be doing it like great. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.